Welcome to the Smart Cities World podcast. I'm Sarah Ray, an editor at Smart Cities World, and today I'm with Ben Green, author of The Smart Enough City, which was published recently by the MIT Press. Ben is a PhD candidate in applied math at the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and an affiliate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet Society at Harvard. He studies the implementation and impacts of data science in local governments with a focus on smart cities and the criminal justice system. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks so much. Excited um, to be here. So I was really interested um, to see your book recently. And um, I, initially, I hoped you could just tell me a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it. Yeah, so the book really comes from several years of working in and around the smart city space. Uh, I had worked in local government, uh, most notably in the city of Boston for a year as a data scientist. And I, uh, in my capacity as a PhD student at Harvard, had worked with several cities uh, developing policy and thinking about how to manage data, especially questions about privacy and applications around urban planning. So I had sort of been around both academically and professionally in practice working with governments to implement new technology and think about the future of smart cities and just had really gotten rather disillusioned with a lot of the different focuses and applications that were being sought out. I initially, you know, came to it as a technologist feeling more excited about what these technologies could accomplish. And as I looked at different domain areas, whether it's data collection related to privacy, whether it's urban planning, civic engagement, uh, traffic and transportation, I saw a number of common failings that the technologists in cities and technology companies were falling prey to that were leading these smart city programs to often not have actually that many positive impacts and often to have a quite dangerous, uh, dangerous approach and that could have very negative implications for many or all of the people living in those cities. So I felt the need to try and provide a different spin to shed light on what was going wrong in these smart cities and provide a different spin that could articulate what role technology can play and how to think about achieving social change with technology in cities without falling prey to these types of issues of overvaluing technology uh, what I call tech goggles, this perspective of always assuming technology is the answer, only recognizing the types of issues within cities that technology can uh, ameliorate and sort of being blind to the broader set of social and political contexts that lead to and interact with, you know, the broad types of social challenges that many cities are facing. So I wanted to bring all of those things together and set a, a quite different path forward. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess that is um, the first thing that really intrigued me about your book was the title, The Smart Enough City, because we hear about smart cities, you know, it's massively hyped. So I wonder um, what you mean by the smart enough city then? Mm -hmm. So the smart enough city, yeah, it's really meant to grab that attention of people who are thinking about smart cities and to say, hey, this is this is it that, but but something different. And there's this key word of enough that is trying to change the way we think about the smart city. So you know, typically the smart city 
is defined in terms of technology. It's seen as, you know, a city that is implementing new forms of tech into its functions. And even just in the way that it's then set up, the idea of the smart city, when set in relation or when cities think about what it means to achieve that, the answer just becomes more technology. So when a city talks about becoming a smarter city, it means having more technology. When a city is awarded for being the smartest city, it often just means smartest, just means often the most technology. That's sort of how the word smart is used today. Uh, you know, even going back to, you know, something as commonplace as the smartphone. It's sort of this digitally enabled item. And the goal of, you know, what I focused on in my research in the book was this idea that technology is never the answer. Technology is never the thing that is ultimately driving fundamental change. But technology does have the ability to catalyze other types and to support other types of program and policy reforms that are valuable. And that the goal is not just to have the technology, but to actually have the technology promote particular social and political values. So that's this idea of smart enough. Rather than being smart, where the focus is have the technology, the goal is being smart enough, smart enough to promote equity, smart enough to promote better transportation. And the technology there in this smart enough formulation is being deployed in service of these broader set of values. Yeah. And um, you mentioned the tech goggles and here about tech not being the the goal in itself. Um, I think in conversations I hear with cities and technologists, I do I do feel that there's a, a shift away from that um, or there's starting to be and seeing a better link with outcomes and goals and choosing the tools for specific problems. Um, do you see that shift um, or you know, do you think there's still a massive way to go? I think that shift is definitely occurring, uh, and especially among particular groups of people. I think most strongly among uh, policy folks and city officials, it's become quite clear that the technology is not going to be the answer in itself. Um, that's actually, I think, one of the, the strongest shifts that I've noticed over the last uh, five years or so that I've been working in this space is now, maybe five years ago, there was a sense of the cities didn't even really know what they wanted. Technology companies were coming in and, you know, they had all the expertise. But starting around maybe 2016, 2017, as more and more cities had explored technology and actually had technology and innovation teams in-house, city governments totally had a different sense of what was necessary because they were interacting with departments, interacting with the public, they saw just how complex the types of challenges they were facing were, and they were really demanding something stronger from the technology companies, which are still often very much operating in that space of, we're going to give you this technology and it's going to solve your problems. Now, some tech companies are definitely starting to think a little bit differently, um, but I still think among the tech the, the corporate world around smart cities, it is still much more centered on technology being the answer. The goal, of course, for, of them is to sell technology uh, rather than for the city. The technology is nice, but the goal is to solve problems. The goal for the companies is to sell their tech. So I think there's still a little bit of a divide, and there's certainly just a broader divide among or a broader challenge in the sense of technologists often not being trained to think about the role of technology more holistically. 
the way that technologists think about changing the world is by developing technology. And that's often the, the mantra and the ideology from, you know, university education and certainly within a big company uh, like Google or Facebook. So it's often quite difficult for even well-intentioned engineers to recognize broader social context, the other types of institutional constraints, social values, those types of things that should both be guiding and guiding the direction of the technology and things to think about when doing that development. So that's definitely a challenge, but I think that on most of these fronts, uh, things are moving in the right direction. People are starting to recognize that the sort of basic version of the smart city where you just throw out a bunch of apps and buy as much technology as possible doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I still think there's not a clear uh, cities are sort of still struggling to cities are internally developing technologies that are working on this. But I think they're still seeking for something more from the vendors in terms of providing technologies that align with their broader mission and values and ability and their actual abilities and constraints. So what do you think um, it will take for those two approaches to to come closer together and uh, both gain value from it? I think it really comes down uh, to market pressure, to cities uh, actually, you know, recognizing the distinction between or the gap between what they're looking for and what the vendors are providing and holding out and not, you know, sort of being firm on, not actually buying the products that they don't think are that valuable. I think that's, you know, seems to be happening in practice that cities are actually passing up a lot of technologies that they maybe a few years ago would have jumped on for the ability to be a smart city. And now they're recognizing, you know what, this, this isn't it. This isn't what we want. Um, as part of that, the ability is, Part of that shift also requires a broader public education and public dialogue about the limits of smart cities and about the dangers of some of these sort of very tech centric approaches. So that even if there's a danger that even if some people within a city hall might recognize that this technology is troubling, there might be others, especially sort of at the mayoral level who are seeking political points, political wins by getting to develop and buy a new technology and say, oh, we're becoming a smart city. I think a lot of uh, a lot of this technology procurement still often is then, you know, combined with a press release from the city talking about how they're becoming a smart city and now they're going to solve all of these problems. Mm-hmm. So the ability to uh, say no to unuse, not to technology that's not actually useful, uh, and maybe dangerous often, you know, has to come back to the ability to say no in a sense that the public will also recognize that, that the public can't be fooled and that you're not just going to, uh, you know, sort of move forward without thorough deliberation on something because it's going to sound good for your reelection campaign or for a press release or something like that. Yeah, and I guess they have to balance that with the the pressure and the the you know the desire to tackle important problems quickly and not not to be seen to be um, wasting time on people related issues. Right, and that's and that's definitely I think where a lot of this comes in is that there are of course these incredibly pressing challenges that many cities are facing, and what technology provides sometimes technology can provide a way to 
meaningfully address those issues. But a lot of the time, technology provides a way for a city government, whether it's a mayor or a police department or a transportation department, to provide the sort of appearance of solving that problem. They might be trying to solve it, but often the technology provides a way of saying, hey, look, this is what we're doing. We're doing it with this fancy futuristic thing. So obviously we must be making progress. Uh, but, you know, see, we're, we're, we're working on this. And I think often it just, it provides a way of uh, pushing that forward and allowing, making it seem like you're doing more, even if it's not actually going to be accomplishing significant results. Yeah. So um, a lot of what you saying is around um, public transparency, education, engagement, um, you know, what, how do you see things in that space right now? You know, who's going to, do you think it'll be cities that should provide that or do you see some um, more neutral, perhaps third party um, giving more information or guidance there? Uh, it's it's got to be a multifaceted approach. I think city governments obviously have a significant responsibility to educate the public specifically around what they are doing, what they are interested in, thinking about how they can have uh, conversations with the public before moving things forward with any technologies to really help people understand what the potential benefits are, what the potential risks are, and make sure that the public is ultimately able to both make an informed decision about whether they want that type of technology and actually have that decision be have have influence and in, over what the city government actually does but a lot of the education and organizing around this that i think has been most impactful has come from the outside from activists uh in various cities who are opposed to surveillance are opposed to uh particularly law enforcement use of new technology whether that's surveillance or other types of, or you know predictive algorithms of other sorts and those groups have done a really good job of educating the public on particular risks of new technology, often of the risks of technologies that are already being deployed in their, in their respective cities and actually putting political pressure on elected officials and other department and departments within the cities to change their practices and whether that's changing what technologies they use and also changing their processes around how they procure technology, how they talk about the technology and things like that. Um, so that's really been a big push. And a lot of cities across the U.S. have been adopting surveillance oversight ordinances, uh, as well as bans on the use of facial recognition technology. Yeah. And those provide a great deal of public oversight over the use of different technologies. Um, and but that that really came first and foremost from activist groups uh, concerned about issues around law enforcement and privacy in particular coming and saying, hey, we need to change how this is happening and bringing that public pressure and and also educating in many cases the city officials about these types of issues. So what do you think um, city officials could do better to um, foster this conversation with with their communities before they implement this technology or when they're thinking about it and do it in a digestible way which people are open to engaging with mm -hmm. so there's i would say there's two parts to this one is sort of the you know the, the process element i was just talking about where mm -hmm. you know city officials making sure that 
even that it's not just them in good faith going and having these conversations, but that they actually are sort of requiring themselves to go and have these conversations, requiring themselves to hold public meetings, provide transparency about the use of these things. Uh, both that, that provides much more robustness and obviously motivation for the city officials to actually go out and have these conversations and makes it much harder for there to be, you know, internal political pressure to just push something through, for example, and to not have a public conversation or to, you know, ignore the feedback that was actually raised at those meetings. But, you know, even just in terms of the conversations themselves, though, it's, it's quite difficult, uh, to really have a, nuanced conversation about a lot of this technology. I know that uh, in Chicago, for example, they had a lot of public meetings about their Array of Things project over the last several years. And one of the challenges is, is that it's actually quite difficult to get into a detailed conversation about something like the privacy policy when Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who you know, what you actually have to do is just explain the role of the technology in much more basic terms, explain what's even going on which is sort of a necessary understanding that many people don't have uh, to be able to engage in some of the more nuanced policy conversations. And I think that, you know, one, and I know that Seattle as well has been having, as part of its surveillance ordinance, has been having a number of uh, public conversations about different surveillance technologies. So I think, and, and so one of the, the challenges is both to provide that education to the public and also to, find ways to have these conversations to really understand what people are looking for without Mm -hmm. requiring everyone to have a deep expertise in the technology itself. That's often a way that sort of democratic deliberation can get shoehorned or get sidelined is that only, you know, it's sort of done in such a way that only the experts are allowed a voice in that conversation. Yeah. And so, you know, Cities and academics have a lot of work to do, I think, to think about how to structure those conversations uh, in ways that allow lay people to engage meaningfully and have a real voice and actually shape what's going on without requiring, you know, them to be an engineer. Yeah. Um, so you've mentioned um, in this conversation, you write a lot in the book about the risks of injustice and inequality if um, technology isn't deployed responsibly. Uh, what are some of your uh, main concerns here? So the main, I, I guess there's sort of two two broad categories of main concerns. One is sort of the explicit um, the explicit sort of exacerbation of power imbalance is that the technology is often developed in ways that provides additional tools, additional power to those who already often use it to exploit others in cities. So, uh, you know, I think of topics like predictive policing and surveillance and that often are used to provide new tools to help to give more power to law enforcement in cities and the surveillance that often provides a great deal of data uh, to tech companies that are also often, uh, you know, collecting a bunch of data and exploiting the public uh, in ways that are not in the public interest. So there's sort of this broad initial category of exacerbating power imbalances. And in, as well, there can be examples slightly less extreme, but still quite troubling of the technology sort of exacerbating other types of inequalities. So one example might be automated vehicles that, you know, if a city sort of strives to just have a bunch of automated vehicles flying around, 
that might help people who are more well off and have a bunch of cars, but that's going to have quite detrimental impacts for other people uh, who don't have those means within the city. And then the other broad category is really the danger of technology and the tech goggles approach towards progress to cut off other avenues of policy reform, that the ability of technology to come in and be seen as a solution to pressing problems will sort of diminish the sense of need for other types of approaches to solving those same problems, that the technology will be elevated above other approaches. So to go back to the transportation example, there's, you know, many cities are, of course, concerned about transportation and uh, mobility. And one of the ways in smart cities, there's sort of this idea that automated vehicles will provide these answers. Everyone can have their, you know, ride share, self-driving car that will move them around and all of that. But there are lots of other ways that cities can promote uh, more mobility and especially more equitable mobility around the way that they do urban development in terms of density and walkable neighborhoods, the way that they promote public transit. And so there's this danger that even as cities are generally pushing towards density and transit-oriented development, that this idea of the self-driving car and smart cities will sort of push people to go into that other direction. Um, and you could think of other places, whether, you know, similarly uh, in the world of civic engagement, where there's lots of energy around various apps and other platforms to help people connect and communicate with each other. And that might actually diminish the sense of urgency to do much more thorough and important policy reforms around civic engagement related to the ways that different the, the voice that different groups of people have and the way that city government operates and things like that. So I think there's a real that's that's a particular danger that I worry about, that it's not just that the application is of the specific technology can go wrong, but that the broader sense of drive that the city is pushing forward in the direction of solving the problem with the technology uh, can cut off other potential approaches that often would be more valuable. So um, obviously you've mentioned um, the citizen consultation piece, but um, obviously and a need for an, you know, an awareness of these things. Is it then just to think differently or do you see any specific uh, process approaches or anything like that to make sure you have this broader view and that the tech goggles are off? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the approach that I would focus on is really about you know, certainly sort of rejecting that idea of tech goggles and a few specific ways of thinking about that. You know, I think one of the number one things that sort of counters that approach, uh, and I, I guess I could sort of run through, I have several principles that I focus on in the book for doing this. Uh, one is to focus on complex problems rather than the simple ones. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time the technology is used in a way to address uh, sort of optimize a lot of relatively simple problems and actually makes problems seem simpler than they are. So recognizing that, you know, if you're trying to solve a problem in the city, it's never going to be as simple as, you know, deploying a particular app or uh, throwing some new technology in the right person's hands. It's always going to be a much more uh, complicated problem to solve. And really then focusing not so much on the technology itself, but on broader sets of policy and program reforms. 
uh, a lot of the most important changes that I found in the book, in the in the smart enough cities that I talk about, were places that use technology in service of other types of reform. So they were using technology to enhance what they were doing, but the fundamental value was coming from innovative policy and program reforms that were changing their practices, changing their way of doing things. Uh, and it was really that synthesis together that created the, the positive change. So it's really about starting with the real problems uh, rather than starting with the technology itself and uh, recognizing, which, which means recognizing that the goal at the end of the day is to solve problems rather than to deploy technology. Uh, and then thinking about much more holistically, what are the various ways of solving this problem? What are ways that technology can enhance those different strategies? So on balance, would you say um, that you're more hopeful or more worried about what you see today in the smart cities movement and where we could go in the future? I think it's really a bit of both, and it sort of goes back to your your question about whether things are moving in the right direction. I think that in many ways I'm more hopeful. Many more people are recognizing the uh, you know are recognizing the limits of technology. They're recognizing sort of the the shallowness and the dangers of the standard smart city approach, um, and I think they're looking for for something more. Um, but I still think, you know, still much of the, much of the movement around smart cities is coming from the technology companies. And I still think that they are, uh, pushing much more tech centric approaches and are pushing much more, you know, very much, I think, using the smart city as a way of gaining sort of deeper control over urban life, uh, and sort of taking some of that control from, from the government. So one of the most sort of pressing examples that makes me both scared and hopeful is in Toronto, where Sidewalk Labs has been developing this sort of smart city from the ground up approach. It um, It is sort of trying to develop this neighborhood and actually just a few days ago put out its master plan for what this neighborhood would look like. Now, the the positive thing here is that a lot of people within the city are resisting this and around the around the world have been pushing back on this strategy to indicate why they are skeptical of this approach, why they're skeptical of Google. And really, the concerns are not just about privacy, though, obviously, anytime you have Google coming into your city, you should be quite concerned about privacy, but also about control, about, you know, Google or Sidewalk Labs is trying to their plan indicates them being uh, having a great amount of power and control over not just the technology, but on housing and infrastructure and transportation. And so, and this sort of, I think, points in many ways to what the sort of next one of the major fault lines or tension points within smart cities is moving towards. It's not just the technology itself, especially as more and more people are seeing that technology cannot just on its own provide the answers, but it's about the technology company control. It's about what role technology companies are allowed to play within our cities, whether or not we trust them to operate in the public interest or whether or not we actually reject their presence of having so much control over the the development of an entire city neighborhood. Uh, 
Um, so I think that, you know, it's still very much a battleground, whether or not the plan will move forward is very much up in the air. Um, and I think that that will really sort of help to point the way towards where these cities uh, and where these sorts of smart city projects are going to move toward in the future. Definitely. And I think um, projects like that, you know, the good thing is it's pushing it into public discourse and people are taking an interest in what's happening there and how it affects them. So I think that's a good thing from that. Absolutely. Um, so do you have any um, examples of um, it doesn't have to be citywide, but just any examples of a smart enough city approach that you have seen? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously we've been talking so far mostly about the dangers and the risks and, uh, you know, I, I balance that in the book with a number of examples of sort of alternative approaches, what it would look like to take these same sorts of policy issues that need to be addressed and to think about them in a much more smart enough city way and actually solve them with technology, but much more thoughtfully. So, uh, I'll talk about a couple examples. One of the ones that excites me a lot is in Columbus, Ohio. They, in 2017, won a Smart City Challenge from the U.S. Department of Transportation with, uh, I think, something like $40 million to improve their transportation infrastructure. And rather than sort of having their plan be just about, you know, we're going to have self-driving cars and we're going to solve all of our transportation, it's going to be this great utopian city, they really focused on specific segments of the city and particular populations that were struggling with a focus on equity. So they recognized that their uh, much of their urban planning and development strategies over the past several decades were not working, that they needed to, you know, focus more on dense and transit-oriented development. And they found particular ways in which mobility was an issue for people in the city, lo- uh, focusing on issues of prenatal health care and, chi- and newborn child health care in the, some of the lowest-income neighborhoods in the city, focusing their efforts to improve technology for mobility on addressing those specific problems. And they were able to come up with through a number of public meetings and interactions with these communities to really think about what would actually work for you, not just what sounds cool on paper or sounds cool to a bunch of engineers, but what is necessary for you. And right now they've been developing a number of different programs uh, most notably piloting a set of uh, on-demand rides, like an uh, on-demand ride program for expecting and new mothers in these neighborhoods so they can get to the hospital, get to doctor's appointments and receive health care, and also focusing on other types of much more uh, sort of less flashy technology approaches that are still going to have a very positive impact, such as improving the public Wi-Fi in these neighborhoods, improving access to transit, and even just improving the access to clear information about transit. So all of these things put together are have the potential to really address this inequality around healthcare. And but but the key emphasis that I want to make is that what happened here was not that they found technology to just solve problems. It's that this was a city that had spent a long time focusing, you know, studying these issues, thinking about how it needed to pivot its strategies. And then it saw technology as a way to advance these values 
and went through a really deep process of engaging with the complexity of these challenges to think about lots of targeted ways to deploy technology rather than having a shallow understanding of the problem and then deploying technology that maybe sounds really awesome when you give a talk about it, but doesn't actually address the real problems that people are facing. Um, And then some of the other cities that I talk about are really building a deep internal expertise instead of practices and processes for using data well. I think this is one of the most important things that cities can be doing right now is developing in-house technology teams, in-house data science teams that are able to address some of the day-to-day challenges that different departments are facing and have an in-house consulting team that can work on these problems and bring that expertise internal to government so that they're not reliant uh, on outside academics or technology consultants to provide this type of expertise and functionality. And they're doing a lot of work to train, build that expertise across city hall. So New York City, for example, has a program of data drills. This is like a fire drill, but for using data. And so there, you know, a bunch of department heads and other agencies will get in a room for 24 or 48 hours and they'll say, you know, here's a problem. We have to have this blackout in this neighborhood of New York City and we need to identify who's most likely to need our help. Who do we need to send out a rescue crew or a fire department uh, crew to make sure that people are doing okay? really thinking about how can we pull together data, make people understand the connection points between different data sets, between different types of information to actually work in practice to address the often very pressing issues that city departments face on a day-to-day basis. Uh, San Francisco, oh, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Oh, San Francisco provides another example of a city that is really developing a broad set of trainings for different departments on what it means to have high quality data, how to think about using data to uh, guide and inform their processes and any process changes that they might want to make, uh, and how to think about actually then deploying that data with algorithms and machine learning to solve more of the pressing problems that they're facing. So I think these types of practices that are going on uh, across the United States are really exciting and often, you know, don't have the flash of a smart city sensor network of 5,000 sensors, but often are actually going to do much more to change the approach and the capacities within city governments. Excellent. And it's good to have um, those good examples as well as um, talking about the risks. So thank you for that. Um, do you have any closing messages for um, any city representatives or indeed technologists listening in that are looking, you know, for tips on how to get get their way through Mm -hmm. the complexity? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of things that really jump out. Number one is don't start with the technology, start with real problems. Rather, you know, one way to think about that would be rather than saying the goal is to become a smart city, if the goal is to become a smart enough city, you immediately have to ask yourself, smart enough for what? That prompting of what are the outcome is, is much more centered by the smart enough city than the smart city. So don't just start with technology. Start with what the real problems in your city are and then go out and really think about 
any number of strategies for addressing those problems that technology may or may not be necessary for and sort of do that broad holistic understanding of what what potential remedies might be, how technology can address those remedies, and make sure to talk to a wide range of people to do that. It's not just engineers who need to be in these conversations. It's everyone who lives in the city, uh, and especially the people who are often not included in these types of conversations because they don't have the technical expertise or because they uh, often are ignored for reasons of race or class or other or other attributes or other demographic reasons. Uh, so really it needs to be a holistic approach that values what technology can do, but never is focused on technology as the key goal or the key answer. Thank you very much, Ben. That's been some great insights there and a lot to think about. So anybody listening, I definitely encourage you to get Ben's book, The Smart Enough City, which was published by the MIT Press. Thank you very much for coming on, Ben. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed the conversation.